I love to retell the story of a mission trip that I was on years ago to La Esperanza, Honduras. I took a team to the country there to work on a construction project, an orphanage there that needed a new building, and so our team mixed mortar and laid block for eight days. I mixed mortar and laid block for four days because I spent the rest of that trip with the worst case of Montezuma's revenge I've ever had, but that's another story. It's not easy to get to La Esperanza, Honduras. It's 125 miles from the capital of Tegucigalpa, which is the world's scariest airport and runway, and that is another, another story for another time. And you would think 125 miles, a couple of hours on the road would get it done, but no. It takes about six hours to drive from Tegucigalpa up into the mountains of Honduras along roads that would challenge even a pack mule. And there were times we were riding in this little uh, van, our team was, there were times we would all have to get out of the van and even sometimes take our luggage out of the van because the ruts were so deep that to stay in the van would, would cripple this vehicle in the middle of the road. And then there were other times that our guide, who was an American who spoke Spanish, our guide would have to go ahead and spot the ruts just right so that the driver could navigate that van so that it wouldn't fall into all these ditches. And this went on for hours like this until it was dark. And then there in the dark, our guide ran ahead of us at one point to, to scope out the road. And he was gone, and he was gone, and he was gone, and he was gone, and we were all starting to get worried. Here we are in the middle of the jungle. We're in this van that we don't know if we can go back. We certainly can't go forward. None of us are fluent in Spanish. We're all going to die right here. And here in a minute, he came back. And he was scraped and bleeding all over his face. And he was bleeding like at every joint of his body, and we thought that he had been attacked. And then he got closer and we realized that he had been attacked by something because he smelled so bad. While he was out scouting the ruts, running up up ahead without a flashlight, he fell into a ditch. A deep ditch. But it wasn't just a ditch. It was a sewer. Which made the last hour pretty interesting trying to get to that village. And he sat down there in the van, bleeding, busted up, and he said the most profound thing. Well, you got to be tough if you're going to be stupid. And ain't it the truth? You got to be tough if you're going to be stupid. You know, we start down certain roads and we know when we start down the road, that it's going to be trouble. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, you know this is not going to go well. But if you act stupid, you better toughen your hide because you're going to get some pump knots put on your head. You're going to get scraped up. You're going to bleed. You're going to hurt. It's part and parcel, I think, for the course. It's part of being human that we're all going to hurt. And sometimes we're going to hurt because of self-inflicted wounds. Sometimes we're going to hurt because of what other people do to us. Sometimes we're going to hurt just simply because of circumstances. But every human being is going to suffer. Here is the question today. Will we learn from that suffering? Will we be changed by it? Will we allow it 
to convert us. Richard Rohr always says, pain is either transmitted, it's passed on to others, or it becomes transformative. It does a work within us. So you can offload your suffering onto someone else. You can toughen up and just try to take it. Or you can let it transform you into a different person. That's the lesson today from the life of Joseph. And as you've read the text, it's actually not Joseph. He plays a secondary role today, a crucial one to be sure, but it is his brother who takes center stage today in this scene, and that brother is Judah. Now, talk about being stupid and having to get tough. You are not going to believe the rest of the story about this man today. You might remember, if we were to go back a few chapters, and Anna did a fantastic job of summary today, that it was Judah who led the conspiracy against Joseph. On that day that they saw him coming, the the brothers said, here comes that dreamer. And it was Judah who said, let's kill him. And then it was Judah sitting around the lunch table that day and said, nah, let's don't kill him. He is our flesh and blood. Let's sell him. Well, thanks, brother. And so they sell him to a caravan that takes him into Egypt. Judah is the one most responsible for Joseph's trouble over these last 25 years that Joseph has been gone. Now, go back to Genesis 38 and we find an interruption in the account of Joseph's life. Chapter 37 closes with Joseph being sold into slavery. Chapter 39 resumes the story, finding him in Egypt. But between these two chapters is a sordid tale that focuses exclusively on Judah. Genesis 38 gives us the insight as to why we see Judah a changed man in the text today. Because when the time comes to answer for the sins of his brothers, he bears full responsibility. What has happened to this guy that he would be changed like that? Genesis 38 is the story. We didn't read anything from Genesis 38 today because I'm going to give you the summary of it. I'm giving you the summary of it today because it does not meet the PG-13 standard. It is one of those sordid tales in the scripture that is bizarre. It is a twisted, sexually charged yarn you might find on the big screen of a movie theater here in America rather than inside some sacred book. As the story goes, Judah gets married and has three sons. These three sons, Er, E-R, that's really his name, Onan, and Shelah. Er gets married to a woman named Tamar. And Ur, the Bible says, was a wicked man. And the Bible just sums it up real quick. God had to get rid of him. He's gone. Well, in ancient custom, here's what happened. Talk about a patriarchal society. If your brother died before his wife bore a son, then you, as the next brother, were required to marry her. So that you would perpetuate the family name in your deceased brother's name. Have you got that? 
So Ur's dead. Onan, you're up to bat. Tamar is now your wife. But he really didn't want Tamar as his wife. And the Bible says, once again, he was a wicked guy and God took him. So now we're down to the baby boy, Shelah. And Judah says to Tamar this, look, you can have him as a husband when he comes of age. He's too young right now. When he comes of age, fine. Judah lied. Why did Judah lie? Because Judah had already buried two sons. He saw Tamar as somehow being cursed. And irony of ironies, he could not hand over his baby boy to danger. Hmm. So he doesn't. And Tamar does something uh, pretty incredible. Because for a woman in that time and age to be left without a husband, and again, this very patriarchal of the times, was to be left without any economic abilities. Her life was bound up in the protection of a man, and her job, I hate to say it, in those days was to produce sons. And she had neither of those things. So she is economically destitute because Judah will not provide the proper divorcement and new marriage to his son. And so this is what Tamar does. She sets up on the side of the road one day where she knows Judah is going to come by, and she's not there to watch a, a, a parade of shepherds. She's dressed up like a prostitute. And Judah comes by, and she convinces Judah to come to bed with her. He's got no money when the deed is done. He says, I'll pay you later. She said, how can I trust that you'll pay me later? He takes his cord, his necklace off, which was like a, a family seal. She, he gives it to her and says, when I'm back in town, I'll bring the money, and this is proof. Are y'all still following me? Say amen. Judah doesn't come back to town. I mean, this guy is shifty. And so, a few months pass, Tamar is pregnant. And the whole town goes to tell Judah, that filthy daughter-in-law of yours has prostituted herself to somebody and she is knocked up with twins. We better go stone her and kill her. And so Judah gets the whole family together, goes to town, got their rocks in their hands. They're going to stone her and then burn her body for her crimes. And she says, as they're dragging her to the scene to execute her, she says, well, wouldn't y'all like to know who the father of these children are? And they all say, yeah. And she reaches into her pocket and she pulls out that cord. And there's Judah. He has this public shaming in front of the entire family. He's buried two sons. He's trying to protect a third. And now everyone sees, everyone knows. Judah has to publicly acknowledge his guilt, the failure to keep his word. He has to at least admit that Tamar was, if she was unorthodox, she was enterprising, she was smart. And he reaps all the suffering from his own actions. And something inside of him breaks. 
So later, when Joseph begins to put crucible-like pressure on his brothers, Judah is not interested in going down that road of lying again. He has learned a lesson. Because you know what? You've got to be tough if you're going to be stupid. And He was tired of being stupid. There's something, I mean, first of all, can anybody write a better story than that? I'm not talking about the the theological lessons here. You would pay to go see this movie. It is so human. It is so real. It's good to get off the path of destroying yourself and turn it around, isn't it? You ever been there? Years ago when I was hospital chaplain, there was this gentleman in the ICU. His name was Charles, and he was an old man, and he was very sick. I can't even begin to tell you everything that he had wrong with him. And uh, they put in a consult for pastoral care to go see him. And they said, you know, be careful when you go in there. He's mean. He's not just sick. He's mean. He's mean to the nurses. He's mean to the doctors. He's mean to the social workers. And I said, why are you sending me in there? And I went in to see him. And the only reason he took the visit is he wanted to argue about religion here at the very end. And I'm like, dude, you are dying. You know, don't you think you should try to get your homework done before you have to get to class here? I didn't say it like that, but. Well, we kind of jostle a little while and go back and forth. And I kind of hung in there a few minutes. I just had this sense that he wanted to say something. And finally he said, I, I need to tell you something. I said, okay. And he took me back to 1944. The summer of 1944, he was 18 years old, and he was in France. Why was he in France? He had arrived with the expeditionary forces of the D-Day invasion. And he was something of an army secretary. He worked behind the scenes. He never had any intention of firing a gun or taking a life, but he wanted to serve his country. And in the course of the chaos of the D-Day invasion, they had captured a couple of young Hitler youth, boys about 14, 15 years of age. And because he wasn't in direct combat, Charles was put in charge of escorting these boys back to the POW camp. And somewhere along the line, one of these boys produced a knife out of his boot and attacked Charles. And Charles jostled with him and wrestled with him. And in that wrestling, the boy was killed. And by this time, Charles is weeping. And he says, I haven't told anybody that story in 60 years. And every day of my life, I pray for that boy's soul. Can you imagine carrying something like that that many decades and never speak of it? Do you know what that does to a person physically, emotionally, spiritually? It makes you an old man in the ICU mean as hell. That's what it does. Now, I didn't do anything special. I was just the guy there to pick up the mail that he was delivering. My regret 
is that he didn't talk about it 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier, 50 years earlier. So that he could exercise this demon and get off this path that was destroying him. Are you listening to me? Let me tell you how people like Judah, people like us, how we actually change. You ever ask that question? I wonder if they'll ever change. You know what changes people? Personal suffering. That's what changes people. Some of our suffering, as I said in the beginning, is self-inflicted. Some of it is inflicted by others. Some of it is circumstantial. Some of it is just part of living. But when we suffer, will we let it remake us? Or will we carry it to our deathbeds, holding on to it with clenched fists? And as long as your fists are clenched, you cannot receive the better thing that God would have for you. Human beings are really strong. And we have an almost infinite capacity to do what is bad for us. The thing that overcomes that is God's grace. And sometimes that grace arrives disguised as heartache and pain or sickness. Sometimes that grace arrives as if it is a surgeon's scalpel going to work on the deep parts of our soul that we might be transformed. What did grace look like for Judah after everything that he had done? It looked like burying a son, burying another, suffering the same affliction he had inflicted on his father. And when pain gets close, when suffering gets personal, it becomes the real opportunity to be transformed. In our own day, folks, it is easy to have opinions about race, immigrants, unwed mothers, addiction, LGBT, and 16 other hot-button issues. But you let one of those things get close to you. Let that draw up right into your own heart, your own soul, your own feelings, and your own family. And it's not an academic discussion any longer, is it? It gets to you in a way that no argument or words on paper or opinion can ever touch. It doesn't mean you will change, but you will never have a better opportunity to change. Last story. I'm too, I've talked too long today, but this is the last story. I shared this with a couple of people this week, and I've, I've never shared this story publicly out of, out of respect for the gentleman. He has passed. There was a man in the church where I first pastored, and I was very young. And this man was a racist. And I don't mean racist in the 2020 woke version of the word. Racist. He used the N-word, hardcore, card-carrying, racist. And I look back at it now, and I'm horrified, really. Well, as these things go, this man had a daughter, and this young daughter was in a relationship. She got pregnant, and the father 
was a black man. And this guy lost his mind. He refused to see his daughter again, refused to talk to her. His daughter had a daughter, precious little baby girl. He didn't go to the hospital to see the birth. He wouldn't visit the child. He cut off all financial support and emotional support to his daughter. He forbid his wife to visit the child. And as these things go, his daughter had an addiction issue that she couldn't get under control. Her life was falling apart with this new baby in her life. And just before children's services came swooping into that family, the grandmother of the baby, who had been forbidden to get involved, went over to that house and got that little baby and brought her home. And now this racist grandfather has this beautiful, brown-skinned, curly-haired baby living in his own house. Hmm. I bumped into him four or five years later. This little girl was now first grade, kindergarten. I inquired about his family. And I mean, tears the size of quarters formed on his cheeks, and they began to roll down his redneck, sunburned cheeks. And he said, Ronnie, every morning I get up, I go to the kitchen, I read the paper, I get my coffee before I go to work. And every day for the last five years, that little baby girl gets up with me and has a chocolate milk at the table. And when I get ready to leave, she puts her arms around my neck and says, Poppy, I love you. Have a good day. That guy's not a racist anymore. And it wasn't because he went to a seminar. And it wasn't because he got sensitivity training, though he probably needed it. It wasn't because he read the right book or attended the right church service. The thing deep inside of him that he hated and he resisted, that thing got real close to home. And when that happens, we've got an opportunity to do business with the things deep in our souls and we can be transformed. If we will. If we will.